is really hard to describe. Maybe that's why I had to write a book about it. It's a festival that takes place every year in the Black Rock Desert in Nevada. The event is centered around a 40-foot high effigy lit up with neon and at the end of the week filled with fireworks and pyrotechnics um, and ignited in a grand spectacle that draws everybody in the camp to this event. And so all of these 30 or 40,000 people now who gather for this event called The Burn, The Burning of the Man, have a license to project whatever it is that they desire whatever it is within themselves that they want to release or be rid of onto this figure and to let that all go up in flames. What did we get into today? <laughs> Burning Man, uh, like you saw in the video, uh, is an annual festival. It started in the 80s in California, but it got so big that they had to move it to a desert out in California, or I'm sorry, out in Nevada. Uh, the, the clip you watched was from a, a little documentary uh, produced by, as a part of a research project by Professor Lee Gilmore at the Religious Studies Department at UC Berkeley. Uh, so it's, even, you know, it's, it's becoming a, a topic of research because of, of the type of cultural phenomenon that it really is. Uh, it's a little bit out of, out of date, too. The, the statistics that she gives are, are some years old. Uh, this is the city that they set up every year, the temporary city in, in the Black Rock Desert. Last year, when, when people showed up around Labor Day weekend, uh, it was almost 70,000 people that came to this uh, week-long festival in the desert. Uh, it, it's unique. If you've ever been to a, you know, an outdoor concert or a festival of this size, which there really aren't that many, uh, it's different from most of those. Burning Man has a set of its own Ten Commandments, uh, one of those is it's a leave-no-trace community. So what you see there, the temporary city that's set up, uh, there are no permanent buildings or installations. They bring everything in, they set it up, and then they take it down and, and, or burn it down and then remove everything at the end of the week. Even though it's in the desert, everyone who comes wants to leave the middle-of-nowhere desert looking better than when we found it. And so you can't dig any holes or dump anything there. Uh, that's part of who they are as a culture. Another part is that it's zero commerce. So once you buy your ticket to get into Burning Man, there is now no more advertising around camp. There, you can't buy or sell anything. There's no marketplace. There are no souvenirs to be had. And the reason for this is they want to experience this type of community that's based on, on gifting. So part of their culture is a culture of giving gifts. So people who come to this festival every year, if they have, if they are, if they have more means in their life, they'll bring extra food and water to give out for free to the people who may not have as much and then the people who may not have as much will bring creative gifts to give out on their own. Uh, and so it's an experiment in community. They often call it that. Uh, the whole week, you know, it, it can kind of loosely be described as an arts festival. There are big sculptures and installations all over that you can, can interact with and look at. There are, you know, music and, and DJ concerts and raves and all kinds of things you can do. And then the whole thing does culminate at the end of the week with the burning of this gigantic 40-foot-tall wooden and neon man. I first heard about this festival in 2012 uh, when I was a graduate student at Wheaton College. I was working on a master's degree at the time. Uh, and like any good seminary program, we were studying our theology and our church history and our biblical interpretation. Uh, we were even studying unique ways to share our faith with the people around us. But when I and a group of her students heard about this type of festival going on and that almost 70,000 people are showing up, 
we realize that our conventional ideas about how to do church and how to share the gospel would have very little impact on this type of a culture. That our conventional ideas about how we do this community of Jesus wouldn't seem to really break in. Unless maybe we went there and found out for ourselves. So that's what we did. Uh, Me and about 10 other students from Wheaton College, we decided we would go to Burning Man and we would participate. We would experience this. We would get into conversations and learn from the people who were there to explore why they showed up every year in mass numbers for this event. But we also wanted to see what it would be like to present the truth of the gospel of Jesus to this community. We even got Wheaton College to give us some graduate credit for it because we wrote some papers and did some research and that good stuff. So yeah, we we bought our tickets, we flew to Salt Lake City, we rented a couple of RVs, loaded them full of food and water, uh, and, and drove the remaining nine hours out to Black Rock Desert where we participated. Uh, Because of the gifting culture, what I thought going out was I would use whatever gift I could think of as a way, a tool to present the love of God to people I would talk to. So not being particularly creative, which I'm not, uh, I just took my little Polaroid camera with me and I thought, you know, because at Burning Man, photography is actually pretty difficult. You can see this aren't the best quality. That's me with the guitar, and that's not snow. That's the dust and the, and the sand that gets kicked up. Terrible windstorms the year we were there. People who come to Burning Man to do good photography just kind of understand that their equipment is going to be wrecked forever. So it's hard to get good pictures. And I thought I would just take Polaroid portraits of the people I would talk to and hand them out, and then right at the bottom, Jesus loves you, whatever their name was, and that would be a way of starting conversation. So, so we're going to do that right now. I'm going to take your Polaroid portrait, because Jesus loves you, Hope. Uh, you're going to have to squeeze in. I can't. We'll do that side first. And it just comes out, a little picture, and I would just write at the bottom, Jesus loves you, whatever your name is. Let's see if we can get the other side. Squeeze in there. Jesus loves you. Is it going to work? Oh, come on. There we go. And I got into a lot of great conversations with people doing this. Um, because we're in the start of a new message series starting today, um, I want to shake it. No. I couldn't quite convince the, the church staff to let me purchase Polaroid cameras to give all of you for the sermon series. It wasn't quite in the budget. But we decided we would set up a Snapchat filter that looks exactly like that. So if you use Snapchat, um, which I encourage you to do, uh, and you're on Hope Campus, so this campus, and we actually found out it might even work better in the parking lot. We're still kind of figuring out all the glitches. But you can use this geo filter uh, and take a selfie. You can use this to start conversations, to invite people to come with you back to church, uh, to see what just sharing the simple message of Jesus loves does through your interactions on social media and online. So that's available the whole month of November while we're in this sermon series together. And that's what's starting today. We're talking about... What are you wearing? That's the sermon series that we're going to be in for the next month leading up to the Christmas season. What are you wearing? And it comes from the passage we read in Colossians, Colossians chapter 3. I'm going to put a little bit of it onto the screen so we can read this together because this is where we're going for the next month. So this will help you get your bearing as we think about this topic. What are you wearing? Let's read this together from Colossians. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. Clothe yourselves with love. What are you wearing? Paul uses this language in writing to the the Colossian church that he wants what people see. You know, your clothes are the things that people recognize about you almost before they recognize anything else. They're sort of your first impression. What you're wearing tells a lot to the person who sees you. And so Paul is using this language to to illustrate the fact that he expects and, and Jesus expects that when people look at the church, when people see Christians, what they should see is love. And that's what we should be wearing. 
It kind of begs the question, what else might we be wearing? There's all kinds of things you can wear, outfits. The, one of the cool parts about Burning Man and culture there is that a lot of people show up in elaborate costumes. Some that they take all year working on. Some that are battery powered and light up. And, and it's just cool that people spend that amount of time on what they want to wear to Burning Man. And so in the conversations that I started having with people uh, taking their pictures and, getting, and just hearing their stories... What I would hear a lot of about these costumes is that people would develop a persona around who they were at Burning Man different than who they are in their everyday life back home. That they felt that life every day, aside from Burning Man, was not as satisfying as it was when they came to that festival. They might even change their name to be a completely different person inside Burning Man than who they are outside as a way to, to almost hide, to escape, to be someone new in a new setting. And I, I resonate with that. You know, I, I'm new to this area. If you're, you know, starting college or high school, if you're starting a new job, you're moving to a new location, we, the temptation is very real for us to want to try on new clothes, to try on a different personality, to adopt traits we think might make us more acceptable, to look a little bit different. And that's what I saw a lot of people doing at Burning Man. One guy I talked to, uh, a young adult, his name was Marky Pants. Well, he called himself Marky Pants. I, don't, I hope that wasn't his real name. But at, at Burning Man, he was Marky Pants. And, and so I got into a conversation with him. We were in the, in the cafe, which is the central hub of, burn, of that big semicircle of Burning Man. They set up a great big tent, so it's a nice place to escape the sun in the middle of the day. And I was just talking to him about, about life. He was really friendly, and he had a great costume. I mean, went all out, feathers and sequins and flashing lights and all kinds of stuff, and it was cool. So I'm talking to him about his life and just hearing his stories about, you know, what it's like to live in Los Angeles. He was a computer programmer, a graphic designer, but, but he and his friends shared that similar sentiment, that they were coming to Burning Man to experience a different way of living, and that they were almost using Burning Man as a reset button for their year, that they had had a tough year, this, this group of him and his friends, going through emotional difficulties, difficulties in their life, and what the man meant to them that we were going to light on fire was last year that they were going to sacrifice last year, leave the festival, hitting the reset button, and everything was going to be new for them going forward. And as we kept talking, I asked, can I, can I, give you, uh, can I gift you a Polaroid portrait? He thought that was really cool, so I took his picture, and I wrote on the bottom, Jesus loves you, Marky Pants, and gave it to him. He started to cry. And I asked him, why are you crying? And I'll never forget the way he looked when he said this. He asked, is that really true? Is that true? I said, yeah, it's true. Jesus really loves you. And we kept talking about his life and his stories, and he opened up some more about his spiritual experiences that he had been told throughout his life in different situations that, that God hates him because of who he is, his lifestyle, some of the choices that he made in his past. He had been told that he was going to hell for some of those things. But here was a young adult who grew up in the United States and hadn't ever heard that Jesus loves him. What are we wearing? What's the first thing that people think of when they think about the church? He even, he said, would you tell my friends? He, as though it was some profound thing, he grabbed more of his friends who were around the cafe and I took more Polaroid pictures and got into more conversations, planting seeds of the love of Jesus Christ in people's lives. What are we wearing? Uh, David Kinneman, who is the president of the Barna Research Group, uh, the Barna Group has been publishing uh, books and articles for the last 10 or 15 years really focusing in on researching the decline of church in America. That's their primary research focus is it's no secret that in the United States, the, the condition of the church, participation and people belonging to institutional religion is, is on the decline. And so they wanted to figure out why doing high-level quantitative research. 
And, and they published a bunch of books based on this. One of them is called Unchristian. And one of the tables you'll see on the screen is, is, a, is a topic that they researched with people aged 16 to 29. So young adults, and they asked them a simple question. Let's go to the next slide. It'll be on your screen. So the question they asked, they gave them basically a sheet of paper, hundreds of participants, to get a good sample size. They said, among all of these descriptions you have available to you, adjectives, uh, phrases, pick the ones that you think describes present-day Christianity. And these were the responses that people outside the church, young adults, gave. When they thought of the church, this is what came to mind. 91% thought that the church was anti-homosexual. 87% 87% judgmental, 85% hypocritical, and on and on it goes. This is what people, young adults outside of the church, think of Christianity, the clothes that we wear. And you might be tempted to think, well, that's just people outside the church. They don't really get it. If they just came in and if they checked things out, they might think about things differently. So they asked the exact same question to a group of Christians aged 16 to 29 to see what they might think. And that's what the other column is. Let's go to that. So this is young adult believers who are inside the church, what they had to say when they were given the same options. It's smaller in percentage, but a similar scope, that 80% of young adult Christians, when they think of the church, think it's anti-homosexual. Half judgmental, half think it's too political. It's the church that they belong to, and that's their perception of it. What are we wearing? Now, the, the purpose of this message is not to dive into these issues. The rest of the time that we're going to spend together, I'm not going to talk about the, the Christian response such as it is to these types of things, because I think that actually even misses the point of what Jesus is talking about in Scripture when He gives us the great command. The, the great command that Jesus describes and, and gives His church, His people, recorded in every single one of the gospel accounts of His life, that we would love God with all of ourselves and we would love our neighbor as ourselves, that's the greatest command that Jesus gives. And I think that's what we want to tackle the month that we're talking about. What are we wearing? Are we clothed in love? Are we living up to that command? If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Luke chapter 10. This is the the portion of of Luke's gospel that talks about this great command. And some of it will be on your screen, but I'd encourage you to open it to Luke chapter 10. Verse 25 starts, One day an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, well, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. That's the great command. But, verse 29 says, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells him this story. He says, a Jewish traveler was walking between two towns on a very dangerous part of the highway, and he was set upon by thieves. And the bandits took everything he owned, stripped him of his clothes, and beat him, leaving him for dead on the side of the road. A short time later, a Jewish priest was passing by and saw the man lying there in his condition, passed over to the other side of the road, and continued on his journey. And then a short time after that, a Levite, who was an overseer of the religious temple, saw the same person bleeding on the side of the road, and he too passed to the other side. Now, the subtext of that is that Old Testament law said that if there is somebody who is openly bleeding, that they are unclean. If you touch them or get too close to them, you yourself will be unclean, and you'll have to go through cleansing rituals in the Jewish tradition to make yourself acceptable once again. And those men thought that 
handling a person in that condition would cost them their position for a time. So they ignored him. Finally, Jesus uses this language. He says, a despised Samaritan saw the man lying there, tended to his wounds, bandaged him up, put him on his own donkey, took him down the road to the nearest inn, paid for the bill in advance that the innkeeper would take care of him and said, I'm coming back to pay if there's any extra later. And Jesus asked the religious expert, who was the more neighborly to that man? And this religious leader couldn't even get the word Samaritan out of his mouth. That's how despised that people was. In Luke, it says, the person who showed him compassion. Some translations say the person who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, that's right, and go and do the same. Show people compassion and mercy. It's a little bit difficult for us to recognize just how hated the Samaritan people were to the Jewish population in Jesus' day. They, they were at one time in ancient history part of the same group of people, the Israelite nation. The Samaritans had splintered off and become this aberration with different ideas about God, a different way of thinking about Him and religion. They were considered unclean, an embarrassment almost to the Jewish people. And I think it's appropriate for us to contextualize that for our own day. Who is that group that you could not even consider loving in your life? What group of people is that for you around whom you couldn't consider clothing yourself in love for their benefit? Because this could be the story, the parable of the good person of a different sexual orientation. This could be the parable of the good terrorist, the good person of a different race or religion or background or upbringing. That's how much Jesus wanted to shock his audience, and it did. He couldn't even get the words out of his mouth. And Jesus said simply to show compassion and mercy and love. And what are we wearing? Bob Goff, who is a, a Christian lawyer, diplomat, author, he wrote uh, this great little book a few years ago called Love Does. And the thesis of that book is, is what the title suggests, that love is not a feeling, love is not an idea, love absolutely is an action, love is a verb. You have to do something to actually show people love. And in this book, he says this profound yet simple statement, we make loving people a lot more complicated than Jesus did. Oh, how we love to complicate our faith. This religious expert in Luke 10 does it so perfectly. He knew the answer to the question he was asking. That the great command of the Bible is that we would love God and love our neighbor, but if he probed just a little bit deeper, well, who's my neighbor? Can we do a word study on neighbor or the word love and look at it in the original Greek and Hebrew languages? Can we pick it apart and dissect and probe deeper and ask more questions? Because the more we discuss ideas of our faith, the less we actually have to do with our faith. The more time we spend thinking deeply about spiritual issues, the less time we're actually doing the things that Jesus told us to do by overcomplicating things. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with asking deep theological questions. I'm not saying there's anything wrong necessarily with probing deeply into issues of your faith. I've certainly done my fair share. But I would say that anytime you allow thinking about your faith to override or to offset the amount of time you're spending doing something with your faith, then you've missed what it means to belong to the community of faith. That being a Christian following Jesus is about doing things that are loving for other people and not just thinking about those things. Jesus' invitation to his disciples was, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. It wasn't, follow me and I'll teach you classes and we'll do Bible studies and we'll think nice thoughts about people who are less fortunate than us. No, Jesus' command and his example was to get involved in the lives of people who needed love the most and to show it to them. And that's what he's calling the church to do. But we love to overcomplicate things because it gets us off the hook. 
the more we think about these things. Uh, I was actually doing my quiet time a few weeks ago, and I ran across a passage in 2 Kings that I thought was hit this right on. And if you have your Bible, again, you can open it to 2 Kings, which when was the last time we did that? Way back in the Old Testament. So in 2 Kings chapter 5, there is a, a servant to the king named Naaman. And, and Naaman is loved by the king, but he has leprosy. And so the king thinks, well, maybe if I send my servant Naaman with a letter from me to the prophet Elisha, that he will be healed, that God will heal him. And so that's what happens. Naaman goes to see Elisha with his servants, hands him a letter that says, simply, this is my servant Naaman who has leprosy. Would you heal him? Elisha's household you know, servants take the letter to him and he says, just go tell Naaman to wash in the Jordan River and he will be healed. God will cure him of his leprosy. So the servants tell Naaman, this is what Elisha said. And it says in verse 11, but Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me himself. I expected him to wave his hand over my leprosy, to call on the name of the, Lord, of the Lord God and heal me. And aren't there rivers closer to my own house? Basically, he's saying, I came all this way to be told to go take a bath. It can't be that simple. And so he's about to leave because he didn't get the show. He didn't go deeper with him. He just said, go and wash and you'll be cleaned. And so Naaman's own entourage says, sir, if the prophet had told you to do something complicated, wouldn't you have done it? So certainly you should obey him when he says simply, go and wash and be cleaned. Oh, how we love to complicate our faith, to get us off the hook of actually doing anything with our faith. This issue of healing was something I encountered at Burning Man that I didn't expect. There's a large part of the people who show up to Burning Man for the party, you know, and it's a big party, and that's what they're there to do. But more than I expected, more conversations that I got into ended up being about spiritual and emotional dysfunction that people were searching for some answer to, that they were hurting in their lives and they wanted to find some kind of healing, some kind of spiritual answer to the questions that they had. Let's take a look. I guess Burning Man means a lot of different things to me. Uh, certainly it's been responsible for a lot of my own kind of wanting, uh, wanting some transformation in my life. It's such an amazing education, the range of experience and people in the world and how people can approach something so very, very differently. Really sort of learned a lot about how well that works. I mean, I suppose that's, that's really sort of, I guess, more than anything else, the lesson for me, how amazingly well it works to really just be yourself. Whatever impediments you think you might have to that, they don't matter. I think that the more synchronistic moments you have, the more that tells you that you're doing something right, you're on your path, you're right in the right place at the right time. I think the quality that makes that happen is um, we're not physical having a spiritual experience, we're spirits having a physical experience. And so I think that there's something about the radical self-care, the survivalism, the knowing that people will be there for you. Community sense uh, is like being in church. People are here expressing themselves in a way um, they never could anywhere else, and it allows for a lot of uh, non-armored bonding. That uh, that quote that you heard the the woman narrating say that we aren't 
physical beings having a spiritual experience were spiritual beings having a physical experience. That's actually attributed to a, a French Christian philosopher named Deschardins. You see, I don't think the disconnect with people in our world today is with spiritual things, as though we assume that people are just somehow generally disinterested in the idea of God or spirituality, and that's just not true. Barna, again, getting back to their research, found that 37% of people who don't have a religious affiliation still consider themselves to be spiritual in some sense. It's a whole new category that they had to define called spiritual but not religious. 37% of people would consider themselves to be that way. So the disconnect doesn't seem to be with interest in spiritual things. The disconnect seems to be with what people experience when they encounter the church. That we would not seem to be clothed in love the way that we're called to be in the Bible. One of the most troubling statistics I think Barna has ever put out, they have found over the years that 84% of people who don't call themselves Christians know somebody who is. 84% of non-Christians know a Christian, but only 15% can tell that their Christianity has made a difference in the way that they live their lives. 84% of people know somebody who is Christian, only 15% can tell that that's changed anything about them at all. Can people tell that God's made a difference in your life by the way that you live, by the way that you act? Can people tell that God's made a difference in my life by the way I treat them? Am I clothed in love or is it something different altogether? It would seem that we have work to do on this, and let's do that work. That's what we're here to do. We're here to dig into how we can clothe ourselves in love, to ask what are we wearing because we want it to be loving, and I think one of the biggest barriers to that is we just have a difficult time understanding how the Bible tells us what our job description is. We have a job description as a church, and actually you can read the New Testament and find out what God's job description is too. That God does things. The three parts of the Trinity all seem to have different roles to play. And this, I know, seems simplified, but hey, we have a hard time overcomplicating our faith anyway. Let's just keep it simple for a second. The Father sends the Son. That's His job. John 3, 16, God so loved the world that He stayed up in heaven and He thought nice thoughts about us and felt good feelings. That's not right. God so loved the world that He felt sorry for us but decided He was too busy to get involved. Nope. God's love did something, does something. God so loved the world that He gave, He sent His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. And the Son, Jesus Christ, saves. Jesus' love does something. The clothes that Jesus wore to the cross were bloody rags, and that's what He was clothed in out of love for you and for me, to pay a penalty that we couldn't, to die a death that we should have, to pay for the sins of the world. That's what Jesus' love did. But it also tells us in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, and elsewhere, and we say this every time we recite the Apostles' Creed, that we believe Jesus is coming back to judge the world. That because of His perfection, He can rightly judge the world. And He's coming to do that. The Spirit has a job description. John chapter 16, verse 8 says, The Holy Spirit, when He comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness. So if it's the Spirit's job to convict people, if it's the Son's job to judge people, our job is to love people, Jesus reiterates again and again, why do we keep trying to do God's job? Whatever profession you work in, doesn't it just drive you nuts when someone tries to do your job? How crazy are we making God when we try to judge and convict other people when He said, very simply, your job is to love. Let me take care of the rest. And He will if we trust Him to do it. Yeah, but... Do you have some yeah buts? This is where the yeah buts usually show up. Yeah, but you're skipping parts of the Bible that actually talk about some of those moral issues. 
And that's fair. That's a fair point. I would say, though, that if the great command that Jesus gave, if he said that in one gospel account, he said all of the laws of Moses and all of the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament can be summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor, then we have to look at every single commandment of the Bible through the lens of the, lo- of the love of God to see those commands as loving rather than convicting because that's how God sees them. And we don't. We look at different commands of the Bible and we pick and choose them and we think that God said this and God said this. Look at those things through the love of God first. That's what God can do. And we can't do that. Yeah, but if I love a certain type of people, then they'll think I approve of their behavior. Yeah, but if I love a certain type of people, others might criticize me. If I love a certain type of people, I might be in very real danger because of where they live in the city or in the whatever part of the world they live in. Jesus' method for loving people was to invite them into his community regardless of their condition, regardless of their circumstance, regardless of who they were before he met them. He invited them into his community so that they could learn about how much God really loves them. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. The people in Jesus' inner circle were adulterers, liars. One of his disciples was called a zealot. A zealot in Jesus' day was a part of movement of people who killed others for their religious reasons. And that was one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus accepted into his community the very person who would betray him and have him arrested, leading to his death. So if it doesn't matter to Jesus about his personal safety or about what others thought of him, why should it matter to us? A loving community is what people are looking for, a place to belong, a place to discover who they really are in Christ. Let's take a look. When I asked them, well, has Burning Man changed your life? And most of them said yes. Um, and then I would ask them how, and the dominant answer seemed to be community. Community, community. And people meant a lot of different things by that. For some, it simply meant, I found a group of friends. And sometimes it's a larger sense of community, that they see that there's something about the way that people interact with one another in Black Rock City or another way of trying to have a society, another way of, uh, of, of functioning as a group, as a civic entity. In the past, it wasn't a city. We each had to really be fully committed to making sure that everything worked and everyone was covered. And, and you know, it, it kind of demanded a sense of, of community unspoken. Uh, now there's a broader um, safety net uh, that we help to facilitate making this happen, which, which I think, like I said, is a beautiful thing and then it enables people that normally wouldn't fully commit to being here to get a lot out of the experience. As the community of faith, those of us who follow Jesus, we simply can't afford to be outloved by other communities in this world. We're called to be clothed in love. That's what people should see the very first time that they see us. My, my hope, we had the children's choir singing earlier, my hope would be that by the time they're old enough and somebody asks them, what's the first thing that you think of when you think of Jesus, they say love. If community is what people are looking for, we have to be about that. Because while other communities in this world might offer that sense of belonging, maybe even a sense of identity and purpose, what they don't have is the truth of the eternal love of Jesus Christ. That's what we have that they can be loved forever in a relationship with God. And if you've never heard that, hear that this morning, that you can be loved forever because Jesus loves you. 
if you say yes to God's love. When, when we come to the table of communion like we're about to do, that's what we're called to be reminded of, that when Jesus wore the clothes of bloody rags to go to the cross and die for our sins, that's what love really looks like. And we remember that in communion so that when we leave this place, we don't just say, oh, I, you know, what a great time that was for us at church. We got filled up for the week. We'll see you next week. No, we're, we're called to be clothed here with love so that when we leave this place, other people can tell that our relationship with Jesus makes a difference in us, that they can be attracted to the same kind of living, the love that Jesus has for them.